Volume the Third, Chapter Seven of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the Third, Chapter Seven. They were no sooner withdrawn than I cast my eye upon the old man, and found something extremely venerable and interesting in his appearance. His form was above the middle size. It indicated that his strength had been once considerable, nor was it at this time by any means annihilated. His hair was in considerable quantity, and was as white as the drifted snow. His complexion was healthful and ruddy, at the same time that his face was furrowed with wrinkles. In his eye there was remarkable vivacity, and his whole countenance was strongly expressive of good nature. The boorishness of his rank in society was lost in the cultivation his mind had derived from habits of sensibility and benevolence. The view of his figure immediately introduced a train of ideas into my mind, respecting the advantage to be drawn from the presence of such a person. The attempt to take any step without his consent was hopeless, for, though I should succeed with regard to him, he could easily give the alarm to other persons who would, no doubt, be within call. Add to which, I could scarcely have prevailed on myself to offer any offence to a person whose first appearance so strongly engaged my affection and esteem. In reality, my thoughts were turned into a different channel. I was impressed with an ardent wish to be able to call this man my benefactor. Pursued by a train of ill fortune, I could no longer consider myself as a member of society. I was a solitary being, cut off from the expectation of sympathy, kindness, and the goodwill of mankind. I was strongly impelled by the situation in which the present moment placed me, to indulge in a luxury which my destiny seemed to have denied. I could not conceive the smallest comparison between the idea of deriving my liberty from the spontaneous kindness of a worthy and excellent mind, and that of being indebted for it to the selfishness and baseness of the worst members of society. It was thus that I allowed myself in the wantonness of refinement, even in the midst of destruction. Guided by these sentiments, I requested his attention to the circumstances by which I had been brought into my present situation. He immediately signified his assent, and said he would cheerfully listen to anything I thought proper to communicate. I told him the persons who had just left me in charge with him had come to this town for the purpose of apprehending some person who had been guilty of robbing the mail, that they had chosen to take me up under this warrant, and had conducted me before a justice of the peace, that they had soon detected their mistake, the person in question being an Irishman and differing from me both in country and stature, but that by collusion between them and the justice, they were permitted to retain me in custody, and pretended to undertake to conduct me to Warwick, to confront me with my accomplice. That in searching me at the justices, they had found a sum of money in my possession, which excited their cupidity, and that they had just been proposing to me, to give me my liberty upon condition of my surrendering this sum into their hands. Under these circumstances I requested him to consider, whether he would wish to render himself the instrument of their extortion. 
I put myself into his hands and solemnly averred the truth of the facts I had just stated. If he would assist me in my escape, it would have no other effect than to disappoint the base passions of my conductors. I would upon no account expose him to any real inconvenience, but I was well assured that the same generosity that should prompt him to a good deed would enable him effectually to vindicate it when done, and that those who detained me, when they had lost sight of their prey, would feel covered with confusion, and not dare to take another step in the affair. The old man listened to what I related with curiosity and interest. He said that he had always felt an abhorrence to the sort of people who had me in their hands, that he had an aversion to the task they had just imposed upon him, but that he could not refuse some little disagreeable offices to oblige his daughter and son-in-law. He had no doubt, from my countenance and manner, of the truth of what I had asserted to him. It was an extraordinary request I had made, and he did not know what had induced me to think him the sort of person to whom, with any prospect of success, it might be made. In reality, however, his habits of thinking were uncommon, and he felt more than half inclined to act as I desired. One thing at least he would ask of me in return— which was to be faithfully informed in some degree, respecting the person he was desired to oblige. What was my name? The question came upon me unprepared. But whatever might be the consequence, I could not bear to deceive the person by whom it was put, and in the circumstances under which it was put. The practice of perpetual falsehood is too painful a task. I replied that my name was Williams. He paused. His eye was fixed upon me. I saw his complexion alter at the repetition of that word. He proceeded with visible anxiety. My Christian name? Caleb. Good God! It could not be! He conjured me by everything that was sacred to answer him faithfully to one question more. I was not. No, it was impossible. The person who had formerly lived servant with Mr. Falkland of blank. I told him that, whatever might be the meaning of his question, I would answer him truly. I was the individual he mentioned. As I uttered these words, the old man rose from his seat. He was sorry that fortune had been so unpropitious to him, as for him ever to have set eyes upon me. I was a monster with whom the very earth groaned. I entreated that he would suffer me to explain this new misapprehension, as he had done in the former instance. I had no doubt that I should do it equally to his satisfaction. No, 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 he would upon no consideration admit that his ears should suffer such contamination. This case and the other were very different. There was no criminal upon the face of the earth, no murderer half so detestable as the person who could prevail upon himself to utter the charges I had done, by way of recrimination, against so generous a master. The old man was in a perfect agony with the recollection. At length he calmed himself enough to say he should never cease to grieve that he had held a moment's parley with me. He did not know what was the conduct severe justice required of him. 
but since he had come into the knowledge of who I was only by my own confession, it was irreconcilably repugnant to his feelings to make use of that knowledge to my injury. Here, therefore, all relation between us ceased, as indeed it would be an abuse of words to consider me in the light of a human creature. He would do me no mischief, but on the other hand, he would not, for the world, be in any way assisting and abetting me. I was inexpressibly affected at the abhorrence this good and benevolent creature expressed against me. I could not be silent. I endeavoured once and again to prevail upon him to hear me. But his determination was unalterable. Our contest lasted for some time, and he at length terminated it by ringing the bell and calling up the waiter. A very little while after, my conductors entered, and the other persons withdrew. It was a part of the singularity of my fate that had hurried me from one species of anxiety and distress to another, too rapidly to suffer any one of them to sink deeply into my mind. I am apt to believe, in the retrospect, that half the calamities I was destined to endure would infallibly have overwhelmed and destroyed me. But, as it was, I had no leisure to chew the cud upon misfortunes, as they befell me, but was under the necessity of forgetting them, to guard against peril that the next moment seemed ready to crush me. The behaviour of this incomparable and amiable old man cut me to the heart. It was a dreadful prognostic for all my future life. But as I have just observed, my conductors entered and another subject called imperiously upon my attention. I could have been content, mortified as I was at this instant, to have been shut up in some impenetrable solitude, and to have wrapped myself in inconsolable misery. But the grief I endured had not such power over me as that I could be content to risk the being led to the gallows. The love of life, and still more a hatred against oppression, steeled my heart against that species of inertness. In the scene that had just passed I had indulged, as I have said, in a wantonness and luxury of refinement. It was time that indulgence should be brought to a period. It was dangerous to trifle any more upon the brink of fate, and, penetrated as I was with sadness by the result of my last attempt, I was little disposed to unnecessary circumambulation. I was exactly in the temper in which the gentlemen who had me in their power would have desired to find me. Accordingly we entered immediately upon business, and after some chaffering they agreed to accept eleven guineas as the price of my freedom. To preserve, however, the chariness of their reputation, they insisted upon conducting me with them for a few miles on the outside of a stage-coach. They then pretended that the road they had to travel lay in a cross-country direction, and having quitted the vehicle, they suffered me, almost as soon as it was out of sight, to shake off this troublesome association, and follow my own inclinations. It may be worth remarking, by the way, that these fellows outwitted themselves at their own trade. They had laid hold of me at first under the idea of a prize of a hundred guineas, they had since been glad to accept a composition of eleven, but if they had retained me a little longer in their possession, they would have found the possibility of acquiring the sum that had originally excited their pursuit, upon a different score, 
the mischances that had befallen me in my late attempt to escape from my pursuers by sea deterred me from the thought of repeating that experiment i therefore once more returned to the suggestion of hiding myself at least for the present amongst the crowds of the metropolis meanwhile i by no means thought proper to venture by the direct route and the less so as that was the course which would be steered by my late conductors but took my road along the borders of wales the only incident worth relating in this place occurred in an attempt to cross the severn in a particular point the mode was by a ferry but by some strange inadvertence i lost my way so completely as to be wholly unable that night to reach the ferry and arrive at the town which i had destined for my repose this may seem a petty disappointment in the midst of the overwhelming considerations that might have been expected to engross every thought of my mind yet it was borne by me with singular impatience i was that day uncommonly fatigued previously to the time that i mistook or at least was aware of the mistake of the road the sky had become black and lowering and soon after the clouds burst down in sheets of rain i was in the midst of a heath without a tree or covering of any sort to shelter me i was thoroughly drenched in a moment i pushed on with a sort of sullen determination by and by the rain gave place to a storm of hail the hailstones were large and frequent i was ill defended by the miserable covering i wore and they seemed to cut me in a thousand directions the hailstorm subsided and was again succeeded by a heavy rain by this time it was that i had perceived i was wholly out of my road i could discover neither man nor beast nor habitation of any kind i walked on measuring at every turn the path it would be proper to pursue but in no instance finding a sufficient reason to reject one or prefer another my mind was bursting with depression and anguish i muttered imprecations and murmuring as i passed along i was full of loathing and abhorrence of life and all that life carries in its train after wandering without any certain direction for two hours i was overtaken by the night the scene was nearly pathless and it was vain to think of proceeding any farther here i was without comfort without shelter and without food there was not a particle of my covering that was not as wet as if it had been fished from the bottom of the ocean my teeth chattered i trembled in every limb my heart burned with universal fury at one moment i stumbled and fell over some unseen obstacle at another i was turned back by an impediment i could not overcome there was no strict connection between these casual inconveniences and the persecution under which i laboured but my distempered thoughts confounded them together i cursed the whole system of human existence i said here i am an outcast destined to perish with hunger and cold all men desert me all men hate me i am driven with mortal threats from the sources of comfort and existence a cursed world that hates without a cause that overwhelms innocence with calamities which ought to be spared even to guilt a cursed world 
dead to every manly sympathy, with eyes of horn and hearts of steel. Why do I consent to live any longer? Why do I seek to drag on an existence, which, if protracted, must be protracted amidst the lairs of these human tigers? This paroxysm at length exhausted itself. Presently after, I discovered a solitary shed, which I was contented to resort to for shelter. In a corner of the shed I found some clean straw. I threw off my rags, placed them in a situation where they would best be dried, and buried myself amidst this friendly warmth. Here I forgot by degrees the anguish that had racked me. A wholesome shed and fresh straw may seem but scanty benefits, but they offered themselves when least expected, and my whole heart was lightened by the encounter. Through fatigue of mind and body it happened in this instance, though in general my repose was remarkably short, that I slept till almost noon of the next day. When I rose, I found that I was at no great distance from the ferry, which I crossed, and entered the town where I intended to have rested the preceding night. It was market-day. As I passed near the cross I observed two people look at me with great earnestness, after which one of them exclaimed, "'I will be damned if I do not think that this is the very fellow those men were inquiring for, who set off an hour ago by the coach for blank.' I was extremely alarmed at this information, and quickening my pace, turned sharp down a narrow lane. The moment I was out of sight I ran with all the speed I could exert, and did not think myself safe till I was several miles distant from the place where this information had reached my ears. I have always believed that the men to whom it related were the very persons who had apprehended me on board the ship in which I had embarked for Ireland, that by some accident they had met with the description of my person as published on the part of Mr. Falkland, and that, from putting together the circumstances, they had been led to believe that this was the very individual who had lately been in their custody. Indeed, it was a piece of infatuation in me, for which I am now unable to account, that, after the various indications which had occurred in that affair, proving to them that I was a man in critical and peculiar circumstances, I should have persisted in wearing the same disguise without the smallest alteration. My escape, in the present case, was eminently fortunate. If I had not lost my way in consequence of the hailstorm on the preceding night, or if I had not so greatly overslept myself this very morning, I must almost infallibly have fallen into the hands of these infernal blood-hunters. The town they had chosen for their next stage, the name of which I had thus caught in the market-place, was the town to which, but for this intimation, I should have immediately proceeded. As it was, I determined to take a road as wide of it as possible. In the first place to which I came, in which it was practicable to do so, I bought a great-coat, which I drew over my beggar's weeds, and a better hat. The hat I slouched over my face and covered one of my eyes with a green silk shade, the handkerchief which I had hitherto worn about my head, I now tied about the lower part of my visage, so as to cover my mouth. By degrees I discarded every part of my former dress, 
and wore for my upper garment a kind of carman's frock, which, being of the better sort, made me look like the son of a reputable farmer of the lower class. Thus equipped, I proceeded on my journey, and after a thousand alarms, precautions, and circuitous deviations from the direct path, arrived safely in London. End of chapter 7 of Volume the Third.